Awesome. All right, are we recording? We're recording. All right, let's, let's get over a little bit. Okay. Equal, equal mic time here. Yeah. All right. Hello, world. Are you searching for a higher meaning behind our current political and ecological predicaments? From the fight for justice in the material world to traversing the mythological themes of the metaphysical wonderverse, Ben and Fiona keep up with the new and check in on the old in this odd, odd world. Welcome to Oddcast with Be and Fee. guest Eden hi there resident mythology expert oh no (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so uh we really wanted to talk about mythological creatures today with Eden who is probably my favorite person to talk about mythological creatures with yay yay um Eden also happens to be my sister so she's pretty cool um (laughs) So, okay, I thought that we could start this episode off. We've all done a little bit of research or thinking about our favorite mythological creatures. Um, And I don't know, I thought that we could just start off with uh, a sort of go around the room. Just just pick one right now. What is your myth and... Oh, what? Well, do you want to talk about like, like, why are we doing this? Why are we we talking about mythology? That's good. That's a good call. That's a good call. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. I think like mythology has been, at least stated, a important foundation of what this podcast is about. It's about a lot of things. We're spread a little bit thin sometimes. But we stubbornly still believe that mythology uh, can uh, still play a huge role in understanding our current world. Uh, myths are demons as a way for humans to understand the non-human world and demons and mythological creatures and folktales as a way of sort of presenting uh, the non-human world to us. Um, or So that's one take on it. But I guess, like, I don't know, like, why, why, are myth, why is mythology important to you? Real quick, real quick. Okay. Uh, why, are we, why are we talking about mythology? <laughs> I, I can answer for myself for mythology. Uh, let's see. I should have come up with an answer for this. But um, I think that myths are good symbols of, um, of what's, what's really going on. And sometimes it's easier to digest a myth. Uh, it's easier to digest the reality of the world through a story. So uh, myths have always captivated my imagination. Uh, and I like thinking about what uh, what their origin story was and how they might have come about, which, uh, spoiler alert, hoping that we can dig into some of the myths that we selected today uh, to get into that. So that's that's me. Um, Eden, I know that you like uh, a lot of mythology. What is, can you give us a quick little background on what uh, your experience or thoughts are with mythology? Um, mythology is kind of cool because I think it's exactly what you said. It's a bunch of archetypes that we use to understand our reality in a symbolic way. 
and um, often they are stories that everybody knows at least some version of, and they kind of tie us together culturally as a group of people with a common um, origin. So our stories are often really about ourselves and what we aspire to be or what we are afraid of. And um, often mythological monsters are really, I think, people in disguise. Mm. I love that. And I love what you said about there are, throughout, across different cultures, there are different iterations of these myths. Because I definitely came upon that when I was uh, Wikipedia-ing my, some of my uh, creatures that I had selected earlier. And um, uh, there were just, uh, it, it went for a long time uh, going through like the Nigerian iteration of this myth and the Finnish iteration. Yeah, super cool how myths take on, they, they just, it's the same story, but different a different cast of characters uh, across different cultures. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so do you, I, I want to get into the meat of this episode, which is, us talking about our favorite myths or creatures. Um, and yeah, would, um, would you like to go first, Eden, and tell us, uh, one of the myths that you chose and why you picked it? Ooh, I would say if we are talking about mythological creatures, my favorite, and I don't know if it's really mythological, but, um, okay. my favorite has always been werewolves werewolves solid solid Mm -hmm. anything that involves shape-shifting into an animal I think those are cool and gosh I think not only does every culture kind of have some version of that as you were saying but if you go back to cave paintings you see the very few human figures on there often have some sort of animal attributes added to them. So I think this type of thought goes way back to when people and animals were kind of conceived of as being on the same level, like Ooh. not really separate from each other. Ooh. Ooh. That's- <laughs> <laughs> yep, and that's my resident uh, werewolf. <laughs> speaking up to agree because <laughs> I feed him and he better agree with me <laughs> uh-huh. very agreeable Ooh, I love it okay you chose werewolves and that's that's funny I also chose a shape-shifting um uh mythological creature and learned today a new term uh therianthropy which is uh basically just means it, it's fancy word for shape-shifting being able to take on a different form Nice. Yeah. So I love new words. New word. Yay. Um, <laughs> cool. Okay. So you picked werewolves because they, uh, did you get into that? Why'd you pick werewolves? Yeah. I just always dug them. <laughs> okay. You're a dog person. Yeah. The more dogs, and, better. Right. Right. But no, they're just, they're cool because they, um, like in some traditions, they're evil and you kill them with silver bullets. In other traditions, they're really not. What in, yeah. I, I don't think I'm familiar with the gentle, benign werewolf story. I think it's actually an Irish thing. 
or at least if it's not, Facebook is lying to me and they wouldn't do that. So, <laughs> yeah, um, apparently, and I was reading this the other day, um, Irish werewolves, I think, keep their shape for a certain amount of time and they are considered protectors. Hmm, okay. So they're kind of chosen from the people and they become a, a wolf for like seven years and they kind of protect everybody in their village. Interesting. Okay, the number seven has also come up in my research. So we'll have to get, we'll have to circle back to that. Okay. Um, that seems to be a very auspicious number. So, okay, werewolves, they're cool. Uh, ben, did you want to share one of yours? Uh, uh, hold on. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, so I feel like werewolves are interesting because they're one of the few mythologies that are, I think, so pop culturalized. Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, like you said, there are so many kind of shape shifting human animal infused, infused creatures throughout so much mythology, and yet things like werewolves are everywhere in pop culture. I mean, there's TV shows and book series. I mean, there it's it's almost like a like oversaturated. On part of vampires. On part of vampires, yeah, yeah. Um, like the whole vampires, mummies, you know, werewolves. Like it's all part of this kind of like Universal Studios early 20th century monster mythology, you know. Um, and I'm just like, I don't really. This isn't really a question. It's just like an observation. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and why are why are they so prevalent? Uh -huh. um, yeah. I feel like they're often used in like movies as like a, like a puberty metaphor or like a, I'm just going through some changes right now. Yeah. <laughs> Side note, have you seen, oh my god, dang it, what's it called? Um, it's that, oh my god, I can't believe I'm forgetting this right now. It's that coming of age werewolf story. Um, no, <laughs> no, um, what's it called? Um, uh, Twilight? <laughs> no. Uh, oh my god, this is so annoying. Okay, we'll come back. Ginger Snaps. Thank you. Have you seen Ginger Snaps? No. What is you Ginger Snaps? You have to see the movie Ginger oh, Snaps. Right. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm on it. I saw it on this like uh, uh, kitschy sort of Halloween night um, one time in Seattle. And it's these uh, two sisters. They're both. Going, one of them starts puberty. She transitions to a werewolf. She she gets bitten and transitions to a werewolf. And it's just about like the sisterhood uh, bond and becoming a teenager. And it, it's so overtly about puberty. Mm. So she's yeah. Well, and I think werewolves in Very general funny. often are kind of like the Jekyll and Hyde of their day, in that it's about letting out the beast in you your bestial side that you don't have as much control over mm. yes and that's why they're also considered evil because they're they're very carnal and of the flesh and you know have murderous impulses can't control themselves so they're kind of a metaphor for sin and for you know all the things that we repress in ourselves to try to be good people in society and we've kind of touched on, that's been a big theme for us in this podcast so far of, uh, like more, more in line of, uh, more in the line of, uh, nature and, and people and like being separate from nature. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we've, we've talked a bit about how we've grown more and we've, 
we put up this barrier between us and nature and, and it definitely comes out in mythology, it seems. Yes, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, give us another creature. Um, ben, give us a creature. <laughs> okay. Um, I picked a couple. I started with like ones that I had already heard of and sort of grow, grew up knowing because there's so many out there that you could just do like an easy Wikipedia search and just find all sorts of things like the day before this podcast. And I'm sure on the next episode of this mythology, I probably will do that. But I chose a couple of creatures. I'll start with one that I had already heard of. And the first is, uh, I'm pretty sure the pronunciation is something like Quetzalcoatl. The Quetzalcoatl. Ast- Quetzalcoatl. Yeah. Quetzal. Quetzal. Quetzalcoatl. Hard K, yeah. <laughs> you already know. Yep. Uh, yes, the, the plume serpents. Um, and I feel like one thing I, I noticed is a Aztec god, I think there's a kind of Mayan counterpart, but... Um, Aztec god who does all sorts of things, the, the feathered serpent, one who brings the wind, one who brings the maize, the corn, one who brings forth the benefits of civilization. It's been credited with basically creating humans using the bones of uh, the creatures of a, of a previous world in the, like, in um, the Aztec um, underworld. Um, and so this is, I feel like a very parallel creature to something like, I don't know, maybe like the snake in biblical, I don't want to make too clear a comparison, but something that sort of creates humans using a kind of divine spark. You know, he uses his own blood to kind of animate the bones of these previous beings. And that's how humans became human. Uh, but I think he's one of the most prevalent Aztec gods out there. I think we, the only other thing that I want to make a point with is this, is that um, I feel like there's this desire to kind of find the kind of pure uh, um, source of a lot of these like ancient mythologies and gods. You know, this is like a god. But I feel like the more you look, they're actually the more convoluted it is, like because these stories have been passed down you know, for so many years that, uh, oh no, did we lose Eden again? Oh no. Eden, are you still there? Oh boy. Uh oh. Hold on. Let me pause it. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. We're we jumping back in. <laughs> we got lost connection for a second. Yes. Sorry. Anyway, so <laughs> Quetzalcoatl, uh, a really interesting god. They even apparently named the biggest flying dinosaur after this god. It's like Quetzalcoatlosaurus or some something like that. I don't know. It's very very silly, but also really cool. Um, yeah, but I feel like the more we sort of look for these origins of these myths and gods, the more you realize that you know these traditions and mythologies are just as convoluted and complex as you know when we dig deep for like the origins of like Christianity and all the different sects of Christianity and ways of like viewing and interpreting these like gods and stories and deities. Um, so anyway, just a kind of like general realization that I found when searching for, um, you know, the source, quote unquote, or the, the real meaning behind these things. But anyway, Quetzalcoatl, the winged serpent, one who brings forth civilization and uh, created humans. That's pretty cool. Um, I can relate that to two different things. Well, first of all, my name is Eden, so of course... <laughs> If you go back to the Garden of Eden, their expulsion from Eden is really what makes them human, like you were saying. And that mm-hmm. is where they are tempted by the snake who 
I guess, is, is the counterpart to Lucifer, who may or may not exist by then, because I'm not really up on my biblical <laughs> mythology. But, um, yeah, so he kind of is the impetus or the catalyst for them having to leave the Garden of Eden and go forth into the world and then really start the story. Yeah, and what's interesting is that, you know, there's so many gods in Aztec, uh, the Aztec pantheon, that multiple gods who are sort of in charge of um, the underworld are very upset that Quetzalcoatl has taken their, the bones. I mean, apparently there's like four different, like, species of like humans you know that have like existed oh. yeah there's like oh. four different yeah there's four different varieties and so like the, he takes the bones of like the last variety um and the you know caretakers of the underworld are very upset and they like try to like hunt him down um and so once again i realize there's a lot of similarities between the aztec pantheon and like the greek pantheon and that all these gods represent these like very like competing forces of nature that are just kind of like violently just like clashing with each other and for territory this doesn't really seem to like worry the humans because they sort of pray to all of them in different ways but they're also very aware that all these other deities and forces are very much like murderously at each other's throats and fighting for dominion over the human world uh-huh and humans did create these beliefs, uh, possibly reflecting their own uh, perceived tumult in the world. Uh-huh. Right. The other big snake story that I know of from that same part of the world is only because I had to do a little research in order to do this painting I did once. The Shipibo, um tribe in the Amazon who kind of originated the ayahuasca ceremony believe that the anaconda (laughs) is sort of a progenitor being and that the patterns of his scales are a a very mystical pattern that you can follow for spiritual reasons so it's the basis of some of their artwork Oh, so so wait. How do, can you go into that a little more? How does that work? They're looking at these patterns. And... <laughs> I I really wish I could. I wish oh, okay. I had done my research on this, but I didn't know we were going to talk about snakes. Um, yeah, like some of the the artwork is kind of based on on anaconda patterning on because they have really beautiful skins. Honestly, mm-hmm. if you look at them, um, they're probably really impressive in the wild. <laughs> as just a thing that would be in their environment because they're huge snakes. Um, And, you know, I think all reptiles are are absolutely gorgeous. But, yeah, um, part of, you know, a lot of the artwork that comes out of ayahuasca ceremonies is apparently based on these motifs that come from the natural world. And so they have this mystical significance as well that... um, Maybe for the next podcast, I'll do a little more research into. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I wrote down in my notes the ayahuasca serpent goddess <laughs> as another <laughs> as another example of like serpents being like a very commonly uh, referred to mythological motif, especially when it comes to kind of illuminating yet forbidden knowledge. You know, that sort of oh, makes yeah. us who we are. Uh huh. Cool. So they're kind of the bridge between the the mundane world and the spiritual world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, snakes are weird, and human all humans know this. As a fact. Yes, 
it's it's interesting that like myths are also that that connection to us for us between the the mundane and the spiritual and we it, it's our way of like interp i don't know it, it's it's interesting that humans need need that to interpret these already very wild things in the world like snakes and um yeah it just can't get much crazier and this is our way of like processing the uh the absolutely insane patterns of snakes or crazy things that nature does yeah i mean look at this the design of snakes in general i mean they have no legs Mm -hmm. they get around really well they're completely alien to our body design there's a far side comics it's like god creating snakes out of clay he's just like rolling them up into little things he's like man these little guys are easy I really am captivated by, I've always been captivated by Irish and Greek mythology and, um, and, and Scottish mythology. So I, uh, I picked, uh, Selkies, uh, which are, um, from, uh, Irish, uh, sorry, from Scottish mythology. And they're, they're mythical beings that are able to change from a seal to a human by shedding their skin, um, and you can kind of see how in these stories people were, uh, if you've ever looked at a seal, you kind of see, you, you want to like see human features in them sometimes. Like I, I think of their eyes as a little humanoid. And so that's emphasized in some of the stories I was looking up earlier. Uh, they're, they're often uncannily human eyes um, is how you can tell a selfie. But, um, yeah, there, there are both men and male and female, uh, seal people. And they, uh, the, the myths about the, the men selfies are a bit more, um, uh, feminist supporting, uh, because apparently the, uh, mortal woman, uh, the, the male selfies could not come to shore, uh, to seduce the mortal woman until the mortal woman had uh, gone to the shore and cried seven tears into the ocean. Um, and so, but then with the, uh, the female... So you really don't want to stub your toe on a rock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because then you will be uh, a, a, a seal the size of a man will emerge from the waves and just shed his skin and then try to mate with you. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you're like, oh, sorry, it's just my big toe. I'm sorry. <laughs> I take it back. I take it back. <laughs> False alarm. <laughs> <laughs> but then, uh, so I didn't know much about the selkie men, but the selkie women are, um, they're all, you know, in their little pod or whatever you call a group of, of seals uh, uh, hanging out. And then the, the women, um, they are, uh, they have a bit more of a sadder story. So they will uh, a, a man will sometimes catch one of the sulky women sunbathing on a rock leaving her skin to dry out in the sun and he will uh steal her coat and she can't return to her 
her group, her, her sister, brother, and her, her family of selkies until she has that skin back. And so he will hide it from her and force her to become his bride, basically. So it kind of sucks for, uh, for the women selkies. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I chose this one because um, I chose this one and I also uh, looked into changelings and both they had a similarity to them. They were both um, uh, speculated to have been birthed from people's imaginations to describe various uh, deformities uh, in, in children or, or misfortunes that befell children. So with selkies, you sometimes had children with webbed fingers and toes or... Um, sometimes they would have scaly skin that smelled fishy. And these are now medical conditions that we can like study and point to. But at the time, that is a potential reason why they might have come up with this elaborate creature to explain away the deformities or abnormality. I, I would say abnormal. Uh, what, what's the, I don't know. The just abnormality. Abnormality. Yeah. Um, of, of some kids. Um, or also, you know, uh, I, another interesting um, opinion that I came across was Selkies sort of came about to uh, account for women who didn't fit well into society because these Selkie women would just sort of pine away wanting to return to the sea for years and years until they could steal back their coat. And changelings were a way to explain how, you know, babies seem to thrive for a while and then become sickly and die. Yeah, yeah. So that was the, that was a connection between my two Irish-Scottish myths that I gravitated towards. Um, yeah, so uh, I think I really wanted to get into questions of um, what... Uh, I don't know. So, so we, we're into uh, reading about these myths and, and they've captured our imagination to some extent. Uh, but are there any, like, are there any stories or creatures that actually have helped build your personal uh, understanding of the world? Um, or, or have any of these resonated with your, your personal beliefs about the world? Open question. Ooh, that's a good one. Thank ben, you. you go first. <laughs> well, one interesting, I don't know if this answers the question or not, but one interesting thing about uh, Quetzalcoatl, the Aztec god that I mentioned before, was there. there's this myth around this myth um, that a... The, was it either the like high priest or the like emperor at the time... Or you know, during the 1500s, had like a vision from Quetzalcoatl that basically said like the, the Spaniards are arriving soon or something like that. And like Quetzalcoatl, and obviously you know that 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 story in and of itself was like showed to be just a myth, but it doesn't really matter because I still find it very interesting that Quetzalcoatl, the kind of the Aztec god of I guess divine knowledge uh, and and I don't know, divine knowledge and all the sort of the, 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 the wielder of the fate of humanity was sort of telling the Aztecs like there's something else coming there's something 
on there's something that you don't know about that's deadly and that's going to completely uproot your entire what was then an incredibly uh, large empire at the time. Like the Aztecs were at the peak of their uh, empire when the Spaniards arrived, and of course, you know, they got decimated very quickly. Um, and so I don't know. I just sort of view there's something just ominous about the um, presence of these these myths. Like there's a kind of uh, tragic human reality behind a lot of these myths. Whether mm-hmm. to me, when I hear about the, um, the Selkies, I just think of like it's like a metaphor to explain the like misery of like taking like a woman away from her family and marrying her off. Mm-hmm. The kind of like deep melancholy that will like that can set in. Um, or just a like divine god of like knowledge that can be dangerous, sort of ominously signaling uh, a change in in time. I mean, you know, Aztecs and Mayans they were very calendar based people, and so they were very much just like uh, you know, uh, Quetzalcoatl was the only one who who could read the entire calendar, and so people like looked mm-hmm. to them as like the only one who who knew the true fate of humanity. Um, so I don't know the kind of ominousness the ominousness of the symbolism from which a lot of these myth- mythologies appear, I find very interesting. Hmm. I got something for you. Uh, you could tap in. So, I don't know. That there's some way to, to tap into this knowledge that, that, I don't know, through dreams or something that we we have access to, to Quetzalcoatl or... Um, Mm. I mean, those are kind of like decentralized myths, whereas these Asian gods and goddesses were centralized myths. These were basically like the monoculture, right? Mm-hmm. Which like everyone could kind of tune into that metaphysical channel and, and symbology. Whereas nowadays, there is no common uh, metaphysical symbology to explain anything. There's just like our own personal interpretations. Um, mm. Yeah. Mm. Which has its ups and downs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I uh, I've definitely always gravitated. So I I don't know. I I like um, stories about fairies, and I I think I've always gravitated towards the the deeper uh, cultural context of these stories because. Um, I, we were talking in the car the other day that belief is, it's some, it's a, uh, a sort of agreement you can make with your mind and say, I am, yeah, like I, I'm not going to have solid evidence of this, but I'm choosing to believe this. And that's kind of how I feel spiritually sometimes is, yeah, it, it just as well could exist. So I'm, I'm going to go with it. And I actually 100% believe that there are um, fairies and possibly even selkies. Like, it, it just, it's totally possible to me. And it would uh, certainly make the world a better place, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, they, they don't have to only exist in symbolism. So... Yeah. What about you, Eden? Have you uh, resonated? Ha, have any of these myths really deeply resonated with you to the point where you feel some kind of uh, personal belief in them? Hmm. 
That's an interesting question. You know, I think the way that I was raised and grew up was very much about uh, if if there wasn't proof that something existed, then you were just extremely skeptical of it. I never had any kind of spiritual training or religious upbringing. Um, Mm -hmm. Our mother's a scientist, and that really colored my thinking for a long time, and it's only recently that I've started to question that and maybe think that just this rigid belief in only what you can see and hear is maybe not the best way to deal with all aspects of life. Like, it doesn't really give you any internal framework or emotional framework for dealing with with intangible things in life, and life is not just the physical and material world. Mm-hmm. So, and, yeah. Um, yeah, and, you know, maybe magic does exist. Maybe it's all in your perception of what you choose to see and not see. Well, and you and I have talked a little bit, Eden, about um, meditation and mm-hmm. uh, arranging a mindset for yourself where you are more at least more, more aware and more conscious of different levels of being. And right. I think that it's kind of, it's, it's kind of the same thing in a way when I'm out in the woods by myself, I'm at a different level of consciousness of mm-hmm. experiencing the world. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's fairies seem fairies or other mythologies. there seem more in line with that level of being and consciousness for me. Yeah, and I think when you have a rigid worldview that is only based on the material, you become blind to things that you might otherwise see. And that's a huge part of all these stories. Right, that it's, it's a sight that is granted to you by the fairies. Yeah, or the gods, or yeah. Or yeah, and they can also take it away. If you you aren't worthy of it or you piss them off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a kind of like cultural patting ourselves on the back a little bit too much over the past couple thousand years, just simply because, you know, we transferred largely from polytheism to monotheism. But like, um, I, I forget who said it. It was some like atheist guy or whatever. And I'm definitely not a kind of like militant atheist. I think that whole movement is like full of like assholes. But um, I think it was like um, like uh, you know the like athe- or the the people who are like Judeo Christian Islamic religions, all the like monotheistic religions, turning their noses up at all the like polytheistic stuff, and then all you know, and then all the like atheists are like, well. All we're doing is just we just believe in one less God than you. Like, you know? <laughs> um, and uh, I've never heard it expressed that way, but that's I just don't. You yeah, know, it's not a club that you belong to when you're an atheist. You're kind of on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but I think yeah, but a lot of like atheism only posits itself as like antithetical towards you know the Judeo-Christian framework of society and all that. So in a sense. You know, you yes. could be a militant atheist, and yet you're still stuck in that framework because still in an almost kind of juvenile way, just like rallying against it. Um, and I think it actually, uh, you're on sort of stronger foundations when you can actually come up with something on your own without, you know, swallowing it whole as a belief system, but also having the humbleness 
of, of being like, you know, if we were having this conversation over the computer, like even like, you know, like a hundred years ago, people would say it's magic or like, you know, two, maybe 200 years ago, people would call this conversation magic, mm-hmm. you know? And so like all there's, it's like assuming that we know everything there, everything there is to know now. And we have like reached the end of discovery, which is of course completely ridiculous. And so I think like acknowledging that we don't know things that we don't know, that's just like a great starting place. Mm. Very much so. And and that's a pretty good observation because I've noticed that myself when I'm telling people I'm an atheist, it's really kind of only directed at the other monotheistic religions. Like, you know, animism doesn't bother me at all. (laughs) You know, if you want to, that kind of stuff polytheism is even kind of easier for me to swallow than monotheism and I'm not sure why that is and it, it may just be that I grew up in a monotheistic society and but yet wasn't raised in that tradition myself so I kind of had to define myself in terms of that rejection I guess yeah I see that I'm I'm more um I like flexible mindsets that leave room for belief and so it it's it's harder for me to get behind just like one one story there that explains everything i really like to leave i don't know have have uh, the mental space for many different um aspects of that story or or versions of it yeah that's a good way to put it do anybody choose any other any other deities, mythological creatures we want to talk about? <laughs> well, I grew up on a lot of Norse mythology because oh, I think yeah. my parents gave me lots of great books to read, and so I the thing that I thought was really cool about them was that they came to an end. You know, you have Ragnarok at the end, where it's the death of the gods. So they were very finite, and not only just very human like the, the Greek gods were, but also kind of had a, a lifespan that they were going to live out. What and is, they were going to die just like us. What does Ragnarok refer to? That's like the, the, the twilight of the gods when there's kind of like an apop- apocalyptic oh, okay. last battle and they all kill each other. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And Loki was fun because not only was he the trickster god, but he would trick you in so far as changing sex. Like he's, the, I think, the mother of Sleipnir. The, uh, the mother the of eight-legged what? horse, Odin's oh. horse. <laughs> uh huh. And I and Fenrir, the wolf, and and some of the other nastier aspects of Norse mythology are also his children. So he he goes both ways and he commits deeply. <laughs> um, yeah. So okay. So that the Norse mythology stands out to you because there is a an end of it. The, the, the story ends for them, and they're not yeah. supposedly still walking among us. They're not all powerful, and even they like Odin had to learn a lot of his powers or acquire them through um you know he he wasn't all powerful and omniscient like the the christian god is he had to to kind of earn his mm-hmm. his wings <laughs> so a bit more human yeah like um he he hung on the 
the tree for nine days as a self-sacrifice and, and gave up one of his eyes in order to learn to read runes. Mm. Yeah. That was a knowledge that he had not previously had, and he had to give something up to have it. And that also has parallels with Christ taking on the cross. And I think there's a few different um, mythological stories about people being sacrificed on a tree. You know, that's interesting. And when I was younger, I, you know, desperately wanted to have some sort of like magical power in the world. And I, in my mind, I would often sort of uh, think about what that negotiation would look like, like what I would give up to have this kind of power, or that kind of power. And there's always that element in the, or there's that element in a lot of, especially fairy tales of there's some bit something that you have to sacrifice in order to gain this, this supernatural power. And in exchange, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think the only Christian parallel to that is really giving up your soul to the devil or the deals yeah. that you make with the devil. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Always involve a sacrifice. Yeah. But, you know, I, yeah, in, in my mind, I'd be like, well, you know, I, I could, like, go blind if, if I could only, like, have the power of, like, you know, sight of the future or something. That that doesn't sound too bad. <laughs> but You're just ready to sell your soul. I'm right, yeah. <laughs> You're right for the plug-in. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little too overzealous. Um, yeah. yeah, which brings, brings up uh, another question that I had written down. Um, what does... Uh, what does communicating with one of these entities look like um, for for some of these mythos that aren't in the mainstream? You know, we're not talking to these deities through prayer or whatever, but if you were to just, like, engage with, with any of these entities in any way, um, I know this might be going out on a limb here, but what... Uh, what um, I don't know. How how do you think modern people or, or even people who believed in these at any point in history, like um, what, what do you think went into that uh, that perpetuation of the story? If that makes sense. Um, well, gifts of food are always big, like the fairies you leave out saucers of milk or bread. Yeah. Um, in the Day of the Dead, you go in in Mexico. You would go to the grave sites of your dead relatives, and you would bring food and drink for them mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to sort of virtually enjoy, or leave out an extra place setting of food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess with werewolves, you you know put out a nice steak. I don't know <laughs> exactly a sheep on a leash. <laughs> Yeah, and and I guess I was I was getting at kind of um, it in for for people who are you know we we consume these stories maybe we like you you draw them sometimes you draw some of these mythical creatures in your artwork mm-hmm. um, plug in for Eden's artwork it's great uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah like are are we are we engaging less are we are we still engaging in our own private ways with, with these deities? I've, I can share that. Like I, um, I really like to, I like the, like leaving a little offering, um, 
uh, part of some of these myths about fairies. Like if, if there's a way, when I was younger, we would leave out little sort of like house items for, for their houses. We'd make little chairs or whatever. Um, Aww, cute. Yeah. Uh, and just leave them, you know, leave them little saucers of water or whatever. Um, and so I don't know, that's, that's like my way, I guess that I've, uh, communicated. Well, there's certainly a robust, um, Wiccan and pagan community still alive and kicking today. And, and they have similar traditions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely pull a lot from that. I think it's interesting that, you know, God's always required offerings, um, Fairies require offerings. All of these things involve some sort of either exchange or sacrifice. I mean, yeah. prayer is, is, like, is basically explicitly said as to be the replacement for offering, at least in like Judaic mm. studies. Because they used to do like sacrifices in the like ancient temple, and then right. they stopped doing it, and I'm like, okay, pray three times a day instead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but incense is an offering. Mm-hmm. Of the type you're you're using the holy smoke to send your your wishes to heaven. Holy smoke! <laughs> yeah, that's essentially what it is. Yeah, not as good as the holy cow, but you know, right? <laughs> holy Toledo, Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. Candles yeah. are often a big thing, or and again, they're they're associated with fire and smoke. So can I drop oops, oops, can I drop this last uh, uh, creature here that I picked? Okay, Wrangler. Okay, okay. So this one I don't know how well known this is. This is a Jewish folk tale. Very. Very. What? Stop. Okay. <laughs> this is called the Golem. Have you ever heard of the Golem? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So basically, there's it's an animated anthropomorphic being that is created entirely from inanimate matter, usually clay or mud. The word was used to mean amorphous, uninformed material in psalms and medieval writing. So there's you know old descriptions of the golem, you know, written in like Kabbalistic text, and it's basically like an incantation you do over like a thing of clay mixed with water and fire, and you basically. It's almost like like the like Jewish version of like Frankenstein in a way, like mm-hmm. a, a sort of creature that you can create uh, that will sort of do what you ask it to do, but it's also kind of a double edged sword because like sometimes he can like um, perform things like too literally or like too thoroughly, and he gets kind of out of control. Yeah, yeah, yes. sort of like a, like a metaphor for a kind of technology that you that gets out of your control. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, but I think the most famous variation of the story was the, the uh, Golem of Prague, uh, in like the late 19th century. You know, this is the time of a lot of like pogroms and like a lot of persecution from these Jewish communities. And so the story was this rabbi basically created a golem as a protective force, uh, against like all these like people who were trying to kill them. And so the golem, you know, he like, he carved the words, uh, Emmet on the forehead of the golem means truth. And so the golem, he creates this huge clay-like monster. It doesn't really talk. Okay. Very large. Well, I don't mean, it, it can sort of shape-shift or change the size, but mm-hmm. it, it, but it, it can't talk because only, it's sort of a, a god is the only force that can, like, give the power of speech, which is like a divine thing, like Judaism. 
but um, he can't speak, and so he, like, you know, gets away all the, like, hordes of people that are coming into the village to, like, kill all the Jews, and so, but he, like, destroys, like, so much in the process, and he, like, the, real, the rabbi realizes, like, oh, shit, like, this is, like, too effective. What have I done? Exactly, yeah. So he, 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 he thanks the golem, and then he erases, so emet means truth. It's spelled three letters, uh, mem, sign, and, uh, and then tet is the name of the letter. So, yeah, he erases the first letter so that it just says met, not emet, and met means death. Um, and so the, the golem just like dissolves, basically. And I find that there's like so much to pick out of that metaphor about something being created, almost in a way that like Quetzalcoatl was, you know, kind of like combining a life force to create something that's almost like perverse, you know, that you can't really control. Um, or like to create it as a force of protection or creating this thing as something that is unwieldy and out of your control and ultimately unnatural and sort of needs to be put down. Um, but anyway, it's very, very interesting. There isn't that many, like, mythological creature folktales in Judaism, if I find, but this one is always something that uh, I found I found fascinating. I love the fact that it's just the way something from there, like, out of destruction. Yeah, out of knowledge comes destruction. Yeah. That's a cool one. I had, I had heard the fleshed out story of the golem on the Myths and Legends podcast, which is really great. You can be listening to that one. Are you still mm. there? Uh, oh. Yeah, I'm still here. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Um, the Myths and Legends podcast is really good, too, uh, while we're on the topic. But Oh, I have to check that out. Yeah, you should. Um, but, uh, yeah, I... I, there is a lot there, and I think that um, the it, it reminds me of the monkey's paw. Like I think there are a lot of different versions of this story. That's the one where um, uh, the woman's husband dies in this um, uh, in this uh, factory accident, and uh, and and they're like, "Oh, we're so sorry," you know. He just he got mangled up in the machinery, and she makes a wish that he would come back and she doesn't give a damn, you know, how he does. And he comes back like as this like creature. Uh, and is that, yeah, that's the monkey's paw. Um, it, she wishes with the monkey's paw. And, and so it, it just, it is worse than, than anything she could have imagined, even though she wanted him to come back so badly. Um, yeah, you see that trope a lot, like Pet Cemetery, Stephen King's story, where when you you mess with um, the natural order of things and bring back the dead, they they come back unnatural in in the wrong way. Yeah, and and I guess there has to be some sort of a, a shared shared agreement there on on what these natural laws are that we that these stories have to follow. Mm-hmm. Well, I think going back to what Ben was saying about what well, you could create the golem, but you couldn't imbue it with all the real attributes of life is kind of the idea that, that man is not God, that those things are reserved to God, and that we are not divine no matter how powerful we can get. So it kind of puts us in our place. Another place where you see that is in Tolkien, where um, Sauron creates 
the orcs, or Saruman mm-hmm. creates orcs, but he doesn't create them out of nothing. He creates them out of elves. So they're just Ooh. elves that have been perverted yeah. into this other life form. But he can't create something from nothing either. Oh, okay. Yeah. So back to sacrifice. Something has to be given in order to for there to be something created. Right. And they're kind of a bastardized version of elves. They're not as good as elves. Mm. Their language is ugly. They're, everything about them is a perversion of what the the natural order of things should have been. Which we also know Tolkien was a little bit of a... Um, uh, yeah, this is all very Christian mythology. Yeah. Or heavily disguised Christian mythology, but in his, in the Silmarillion, there actually is a creator god, and and things like Gandalf are actually angels, or the mm-hmm. equivalent of angels in his mythology that he created. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um... Cool. Well, so uh, then you were saying something the other day that I really wanted to bring into this, which was um, uh, that we, we were talking about this episode and uh, talking about sort of modern forms of ritual. So a lot of when when we get into this discussion, it's hard to to not touch on the topic of ritual um, and because I think that's central to a lot of um, a lot of these belief systems and mm-hmm. how we per- how we perpetuate them. But um, there, so there are still ways that uh, the non-religious uh, cultural attitude still engages with ritual. Um, I mean, right now there are people who are going out. Um, and, and protesting, protesting is a time-honored sort of way of 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 getting uh, of coming together to to confront um, a, an egregious wrong in the world. And um, there's there's communion there. There's uh, there's chanting. I mean, there, there's a lot of ritual to it. Uh, and and we have our own little like private rituals with social media and whatnot. Um, feels very, very much a, a ritual, no, um, no matter, despite the, the negative tinge to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you think that you were saying you don't think people actually like confront what they believe in as much these days? Um, head on. Uh, and I was just wondering like how, how might we actually do that? How might we get? How how might we actually like engage with these beliefs a bit more? Or do you? I don't know. Do you feel moved to speak on that a little more? Or yeah, um, it's like um, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I don't know that 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 just that really captured my. Um, uh, that engaged me for a second there. Um, that uh, the question of like, how do we, like, how are we ritualizing things these days? Um, do you do you have any like thoughts on that, Eden? I think rituals are everywhere. Uh, we incorporate them into all kinds of aspects of our life without realizing that we're doing it. Mm-hmm. 
and we also kind of make these little offerings to you know the unseen forces of the world in an attempt to control them in many ways and it might be as simple as you know just having like your lucky underwear that you wear to an interview mm-hmm. or you know you can have a, a room full of computer nerds and servers but they have you know their their little troll doll that has to sit on their monitor a certain way uh-huh. or everything goes haywire uh, you know um, I had a roommate who whenever we, she went through a light that was about to turn red you know if it was on yellow she would kiss her fingers and point at it <laughs> do, that. do that or tap the roof yeah yeah I mean magical thinking is a lot like the placebo effect in mm-hmm. that it actually has a measurable um effect you know they've been able to do studies where they they had people do tests and they allowed them to bring their little you know lucky charm with them and they did better on those tests than if they didn't have it so it it does change the way you think about the world to have these beliefs and to have these little rituals and to feel like you have more control over the world than you really do gives you the confidence to actually have it i that resonates so much with me um i feel like that's the key element in my life that i'm trying to lock into place is like having some steady ritual and I think especially I've talked with a lot of friends during uh, during quarantine and stuff, and and that is kind of the the stabilizing force for many right now is being able to uh, hold on to a a known quantity and be able to control it. Mm-hmm. It's very comforting, um, and you know people who are seriously into actual magical practice and rituals of that nature are fervent believers that your thoughts and you know having these these patterns of meaning that you impose on the world actually do change the course of of events if you direct them correctly yeah and i i just wonder um I'm very interested to look into some of those studies because I wonder uh, if there is, if if some people are more predisposed to to getting into that mindset. Um, I I think that uh, I feel like I'm one of them for sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Whatever. And I think there's the opposite too. I think there is such a thing as God blindness where you just, you can't see those things. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it just, it, it doesn't, um, it, it literally just doesn't make a difference to you whether you do things this way or, but I, I mean, even I, there's, okay, there's a distinction between um, doing things in a way that you're comfortable with them and, uh, and attaching some kind of superstitious belief to the outcome based on how you do it. So mm-hmm. I guess I'm casting too wide a net here but I do think that um people I've observed who uh see this as too superstitious or whatever they they still have their um I don't know their their way of of doing things that they need to get just right they have their own superstitions yeah just don't call it that we're all superstitious (laughs) okay yeah (laughs) um yeah so um 
Well, we're at the hour mark, and that's usually where we start tapering off. Uh, but this was, I don't know, one of my favorite things to discuss with two of my favorite things to discuss, two of my favorite people to discuss it with. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, and are, are there any closing thoughts on um, just your your personal beliefs of the world and, and what, what this all means? Well, I think mine are very much in flux right now. Like I am now exploring things that I didn't previously. So I'll have to kind of wait till a later date to come up with a, a f firm set of rules for what I believe in now. <laughs> uh-huh. What... And I'm I'm kind of enjoying the fact that everything is falling apart right now because maybe reality can be totally different afterwards. Mm, yeah. Political reality, day-to-day -day reality. Social, economic, everything. We're yeah. really questioning everything that our lifestyle is built on right now, and, and I enjoy yes. that quite a bit. As yeah. painful and difficult as it is for many people, it also was painful and difficult for many people the way it was and mm -hmm. we just didn't acknowledge that it's a really good point yeah um i have a friend who's uh uh kind of chronically depressed and uh, i was talking with him the other day and he was just like you know i i'm i'm like excited for the first time in years <laughs> right at just what what might happen out of the uh destruction of of some things if things really you know changing this could be the phoenix rising from the ashes to quote another mythological creature mm -hmm. yeah i was thinking of that one when you were talking about the ketoquatzel or whatever it's called um yeah i yeah this definitely makes me you have that joseph campbell book definitely makes me want to go and read campbell more for further reading we we should <laughs> include some resources in our in our comments the hero's journey memorize it yeah <laughs> diagram it uh-huh know all the steps <laughs> hero with a thousand faces yeah mm -hmm. um yeah cool well this is great maybe yeah. we'll do another part uh, part two there's more gods and goddesses and mythological creatures to uh reintroduce to everyone mm-hmm that would be so much fun. Discuss some uh, pop cultural interpretations like Neil Gaiman, one of our favorites to discuss. Of course. Yes. Um, yeah, well, thanks again so much, Eden, for getting on our, our podcast, our oddcast. Well, thank you for the invite. I'm very touched that you thought of me first. Come back again soon. <laughs> I will. Well, see you later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.